So I would like I have three pieces of advice for folks. I think the first is to ask for help. The second is to make it easy for people to help you. And then the third is to, again, add value to the ecosystem. So in terms of asking for help, like you do, I get, I don't know, 10 emails a day where people say, oh, I want to like go to coffee with you for 30 minutes. And there's, it's a completely unspecific ask, right? Versus saying something like, um, you know, I'm struggling with how many, I don't know, equity shares to give my advice or whatever it is. Like the more specificity, the better. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Today, we have Angela Lee. She's the founder of 37 Angels, a startup investment network that activates female investors through an educational bootcamp. She's very importantly also a professor at the Columbia Business School, where she focuses on teaching about venture capital. And prior to being a professor there, she was the chief innovation officer at Columbia. She's had an impressive and long career, including a stint at McKinsey. She did her undergraduate at Berkeley and her MBA at Columbia. If it's not clear from her resume, it will become very clear during the interview. Angela is incredibly smart and is great at sharing her knowledge about the world. She's very structured communication and great insights. During our chat, she shares some incredible wisdom and insights about the way she teaches at CBS how specifically to ask for help in the right way. We talk about the gender gap in angel investing and venture capital and so much more. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by ReShield. ReShield is part of the FounderShield family of insurance brokerage companies. It's a tech-enabled insurance brokerage focused on real estate. If you're interested in learning more, visit reshield.co. Welcome, Angela. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Why don't we start off by level setting a little bit. Um, do you want to talk about your role at Columbia and what you do there? Yeah. So I wear two hats. Uh, the first is I'm a professor there. I mainly teach venture capital classes. I teach three. Um, I also teach a leadership course and a strategy course because I am a recovering management consultant, as you are. And then um, the, second hat I wear, <laughs> the second hat I wear is I'm the faculty director for the Lang Center, which is the Center for Entrepreneurship at the Business School. Okay. Before we jump into Lang Center, w- would you give just a quick high level? I mean, it's interesting that you teach three different VC classes. Uh, I think when I was there, there was one, maybe two. That sounds right. What are the three different topics that uh, exist for VC? Yeah. So the first one is foundations of venture capital. And the focus is really teaching students how to diligence a startup. What is it that people look for and make sure that they know how to do all of the math. Uh, The second course is building your venture capital investment thesis. And it's really helping people to deep dive into a sector, a focus area. How do they figure out what they're going to be an expert in? And then the last one, which we're still renaming and trying to figure it out, um, is all about kind of launching and managing fund. Interesting. You know, it's funny, we had Beezer Clarkson from Sapphire Partners on here. And one of the things she talked about was how unusual it is for uh, emerging VCs to have good fund administration, the mm. communication, and it becomes one of the factors they look for when they invest, but it's not one of the things discussed or expected. Uh, fascinating to hear we're actually teaching that yep. uh, proactively. I literally call it the boring stuff on my slide, but they need to know it. <laughs> that's great. No, that's great. Um, would you uh, give a little quick overview on the Lang Center as well? Yeah, so Lang Center has been around since before you and I both went to Columbia. 
Um, and we're focused on kind of three types of students and alumni, folks who want to launch a company, folks who want to invest in a company, and then folks who want to join a startup or join maybe do corporate innovation. And we have curriculum, we have programming, a lot of mentorship with great alumni like you to make sure that not only while they're in school, they can go down those three paths, but also five years after school or 15 years after school, that they have resources to go to. Because as you know, there isn't a set path for any of those things. And that way they have folks and a network to go back to. Got it. And so you're doing, you're teaching VC, but you're helping to mentor the entrepreneurship side. Yeah, because it's kind of one big happy ecosystem. I feel like you can't do one without the other. Right. But there, are, there are entrepreneurship classes at Columbia as well, right? Yeah, it's interesting. Right? I teach several hundred venture capital students a year, but I would argue 60% of them want to be founders. And it's interesting how many of those students mm. take the course to understand how investors think. Got it. And do you think that's a good hack? Is that something everyone should be doing? I do think, I mean, one of my like life tenants is empathy. And so I think it is very good to know how the other side is thinking in all realms. And so I, I wouldn't call it a hack, but I would say that it is an incredibly good life skill to know what the people on the other side of the table are interested in. That's interesting. You know, it's funny, we, um, on the VC side, we'll often talk to entrepreneurs, obviously, and some will complain laughingly about the fundraising process. Totally appropriate because yeah. it's a nightmare. Uh, mm -hmm. And then we'll, we'll, we'll remind them and, that it's often worse for the VCs to raise money than it is for the entrepreneurs. It's much harder. Cycles are longer. Um, I, I suppose uh, you know, maybe the frequency of getting rejected may not be the same, but it's, um, it's, a, long, it's a long road to hoe if you're mm -hmm. trying to raise a venture fund. Um, which we can talk about. Um, okay, so how long have you been at uh, CBS? Uh, eight years. I have to think about that. <laughs> wow, it's been a while. It has Coming been, up in a decade. Yeah, yeah okay. it was weird uh, going back. <laughs> All right, so why we have you here, and assuming most of the people listening don't want to pay for an MBA or you know are past that point in their career, what is the? Let's steal a little bit of information. What's the most interesting lesson you think you teach your VC students? What's something everyone should know, even if they haven't gone through the MBA program? Yeah, so I think there are a couple of messages that I teach in my class, which might be surprising because I teach finance classes, right? So I think people expect to walk out of the course knowing how to you know, build a cap table and do you know, dilution math. Um, but the two things I talk about a lot that are more on the qualitative side, which I think are just important to know, is that being a venture capitalist and being an entrepreneur, frankly, is so much more about who you know than what you know. I think more and more, it's all about the quality of your network, not the quantity of your network, but the quality of your network. And so we talk about that a lot in terms of what does it mean to build an authentic and thoughtful network. And I think so much about business school is that. Um, and then I think the second thing is I, I end every class with be a good egg. And, and I really, really mean that, which is I think there are a lot of jerks in the business world. There are a lot of jerks in the venture capital world. And I just think it's so important that not only is that bad for the world, but I would argue it's bad for business. Yeah, totally. Um, why do you argue it's bad for business? It's bad for business because while the feedback cycles 
in the you know ventures industry are long. Um, I do believe that at some point it comes back to bite you, right? If you're a jerk at some point, and we've seen a lot of the ugly headlines the last couple of years, like from yeah. more notable founders, but on the VC yeah. side as well, I just think that it comes back to bite you, and people aren't going to want to work with you, and it's not going to work for business either. I think it's a big deal. I think you're you're onto something very important here. That you know, everyone thinks our, their venture is going to succeed. And even if it does, you're not done. Yeah. Uh, people use the phrase, it's uh, your life's work when you're building a company. But for many, you know, when you finish or you sell that, you start something else because really it wasn't your life's work. You're just an entrepreneur. You're somebody who loves building. So it is a multi-period game. That's something that's hard to get your head around. Yeah. Are, are there places where you think people end up slipping into the bad egg side of this more commonly than others? When, when are you giving people that advice? Be a good egg yeah. when what? So I think there's like intentional and unintentional. And the intentional, I think, is the more obvious one that's easier to kind of give people advice around. So like not to be a jerk. So like, obviously, you know, the last year and a half, like when things are not going well, um, sometimes it can be easy to like take advantage. So for example, when valuations are really high, right? Like founders can, in some cases, take advantage of investors and, you know, inflate their valuations because they can. And vice versa, when things aren't so doing so well in the market, investors can take advantage of it, like really onerous terms. I think that's like the obvious stuff, like just like not to take advantage of people when things aren't going so well, because at some point, because there's business cycles, you know, you're going to be on the other side of that. But I would argue like the more unconscious stuff is just um, like taking time to get to know people as humans. Like that would be one, mm -hmm. which is hard, right? Because we're all really, really busy. Um, giving more to your network than you take from it, I think is another. Um, I just I'm, a book that I loved, um, and I uh, it was I gave it out. I think it's like 2019. It was like the gift I gave out was Give and Take by Adam Grant, which is all about giving to your network. And I think to be a giver to your network, like it takes time and intentionality. That when you're a matcher or even a taker, it's not because you want to be a jerk. It's just because we're all really busy. So I think that's something I talk a lot about giving to your network. Got it. So the quality of the network comment, I think, is also interesting because we, you know, if you're an MBA student at Columbia, which is teaching 100 kids a year going through your class, which is going to print a bunch of VCs, I don't know if this is true, but I would assume the vast majority, the largest uh, alumni network of venture capital in New York is Columbia students, Columbia alums, right? Okay. They're coming out. And if you're, if, you're an under, if you're an MBA student, you come out and you want to be a founder, you probably have classmates who became VCs. Right. So you've got that quality of network. You've got people who are in those roles. What happens if you didn't go to the right schools or you're new to the area or you didn't come from that background? So this is one of the things. We launched a platform called Thunder.vc with the hope of flattening uh, access to capital to make it so you didn't have to be born in the right circle or stumble into the right networks because you could match in theory with someone Based on the qual, you know, based on your criteria objectively, and get in there. So, how do we balance the build a high quality network with also this kind of idea of fair access? Yeah. How do we do that in the business world? I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, so, I would like I have three pieces of advice for folks. I think the first is to ask for help. The second is to make it easy for people to help you, and then the third is to again add value to the ecosystem. So, in terms of asking for help. Like you do, I get, I don't know, 10 emails a day where people say, oh, I want to like go to coffee with you for 30 minutes. And there's, it's a completely unspecific ask, 
right? Versus saying something like, um, you know, I'm struggling with how many, I don't know, equity shares to give my advisor, whatever it is. Like the more specificity, the better, because then I can say, you know, I actually don't know anything about Bitcoin. I have no idea what's happening with Bitcoin, but why don't you talk to so-and-so, right? That could be more helpful. Um, but also then making it easy for me to help you. So as opposed to saying, hey, do you know any ed tech investors in New York? Being like, hey, you're connecting these three people on LinkedIn. I researched them. I wrote an intro email for you. Just if you could send those off. Right. I'm so much more likely to help that founder who is specific about their ask and then who makes it easy for me to help them than the person who's like, oh, I want to take you to coffee for 30 minutes. So that's kind of on the help side. And then again, giving to the network. I think that everybody can add value in some way. Um, and people remember that. And I think um, by showing that energy, you're going to get it back. I love that. I love that. I, I think this is one of those things. I think the language a lot of us use is the more you give, the more you get. Yeah. But it, I haven't heard of anyone teaching it as a concept. Yeah. Um, the other thing I find that's interesting is a lot of people when they ask for the generic coffee or chat have a very specific ask that we can do digitally. Hey, I'm looking yes. for a job or I'm looking for funding, which are two common asks that come my way when those are fine. But I have systems and process for that. I connect you with the right people mm-hmm. and the machine starts. Uh, so it's interesting that there is a need for coaching around this. What I have found is I just write back and say, how can I help? They're saying, Hey, let's, let's get coffee. And I say, how can I help you? And I think people then get brave and make the ask. The ask is great. If you're in the business of helping folks, that's part of your trend, you know, what you do. Um, it's easier. I think, I think one thing people need to realize it's not taboo. Yeah, I think that's what it's like. I think they think they're being more polite by not making the direct ask. But like, first of all, that's our job is to help founders, Um, and you're making our life easier by that with that specificity because I now I can respond to you in one email versus three, and that is you multiply that times the hundreds of emails we all have a day. That's that's hours in a day. That's awesome. So, what drew you to academia? I think I've asked you this question before, but. I want to hear the answer again. Yeah, I would say that um, it actually happened when I was at McKinsey and um, I was talking to a partner and I was like, oh, I, I love that a we get to take so much training um, when we're here. And then I love the part of the client assignment when it's actually ending and we get to hand it over to the assignment, the, like, the project, the strategy to the client and teach them how to do it. And the partner was like, why are you doing a job where you love maybe 20% of what you're doing? It's like, <laughs> go just do that. And I realized I, that's like my favorite part is like unlocking knowledge in somebody else and empowering them. And so I spent um, like two or three years running a bunch of experiments. I thought I was going to be an executive coach. I tried teaching second grade, eighth grade, high school, MBA, executive mm-hmm. education. I was doing like podcasts. I was on TV. I, I did everything that was around disseminating information to humans. And I had an Excel spreadsheet and I tested channel, topic, and audience. And I had a little rubric and I realized I like teaching long-form content. I like teaching that kind of MBA age. And I, you know, settled on still too many topics that I like to teach. Most professors teach like two courses. I teach five. Um, so yeah, that, that is the three-year experiment that I ran that I'm still running. Uh, I, I love the Excel sheet, and I I've, I I connect. I show it in I've class. I've done that for everything. <laughs> oh, you show it in class. I, I did that for everything from moving to a new home on, yeah. onward. The, uh, the checking it off. That's great. I think once you've have consulting training, it's hard not to use the Excel sheet. Oh, um, 
during our um when my husband and i got married i like was using pivot tables on our invite list he's like how are you pivot tabling everything I'm like, I, love, I love a good pivot table that's great okay uh all right so you you went to cbs uh, how has it changed because you were a student there uh a little while ago uh how has the programmed uh you know the business school changed overall or specifically within more like entrepreneurially focused uh, entrepreneurial focus is probably more interesting, but I'm open to the to either. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, overall, I think there's just been a really big push towards experiential learning. Um, I think mm. um, that's just really interesting. And then our new dean, Kostis uh, Maglaris, is really focused on like a more digital curriculum, and so we're teaching coding classes, stuff that you wouldn't expect a business school to teach. That's kind of broadly speaking. Um, specifically within entrepreneurship, just the interest in venture capital is insane. So I teach foundations oh. of venture capital to 300 students a year. Um, that's how many people are interested in kind of learning this stuff. And um, so that's one thing. I also think that, um, again, experiential learning, I think, is something that's very central to the way that I teach and the way that I like to run the center. And something that we're trying to do a better job of is really activating the power of the network. And do you think the MBA program as it stands now is a really valuable asset for entrepreneurs and or VCs as they're kind of taking a stepping stone in their career? I think it absolutely is if you're purposeful and intentional about it. I think the mistake that people make, whether they're, they want to be a founder or they want to be an investor, is they are a little bit too all over the map kind of in their first year. I mean, two years goes by very quickly, especially if you think about how quickly you have to recruit for your summer internship. And they come and they're like, well, you know, and I say this as somebody who did this, right? I I, I thought I was sort of, I like, I interviewed with Lehman Brothers, right? I obviously interviewed with consulting. And I think people, especially with venture capital, I think you need to be a little bit more intentional about starting to make those connections early. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, what's unique about the program at CBS? Because I know a lot of business schools, uh, like VC has been on the rise and um, it's been popularized for now 21 years in a very, very major way. Uh, maybe 24, 24, 25 years, I guess, in the beginning of the boom. What, what is unique about what CBS is doing for this space, how you're approaching it? Yeah. So um, the first thing is access to network. I'm probably going to say network about 75 times today, um, but mm -hmm. it is true. Like There's just a density of network in New York City of alum that you know we're actually um again trying to activate that right now so i think that that cannot be beat and it means that you can have an internship and be in the office two days a week in a way again in a post-covid world in a way that our peer schools can't so i think that's one thing um and then the second thing is we are launching a new venture capital program in the fall um where it's a two-year program and it's curriculum mm -hmm. and you get paired with a fund your first year you write an investment thesis with them you are conducting diligence um, on real companies. We actually have money to deploy. And so the students are actually helping us to make investment decisions. And it is really like a two-year apprenticeship program paired with curriculum that does not exist at any of the other business schools. That's very innovative. I didn't even know that was happening. It is. You're hearing it here first. That's very cool. Has that been announced or is this the breaking news here? Uh, it actually... I actually don't know if I was supposed to say that because it hasn't been <laughs> announced yet, but it is happening. Um, and uh, there will be something formal coming out soon. That's terrific. I applaud you for that. That sounds very innovative. Okay, so you're, you're focused, you found your life mission in teaching. 
Uh, you're doing that in more ways than through CBS. So, uh, we both know. That's right. Uh, do you mind giving us an overview of 37 Angels? Yeah. Um, so 37 Angels is something that I started also eight years ago. And we have kind of two arms what we do. The first is we're an investment network. We have 100 folks in the network. And every year we look at about 2,500 companies and invest in 10. We've invested in 80 companies to date and uh, thankfully have two unicorns in that, in that batch. Um, and then the other part of it that I'm really passionate about is uh, the boot camp. So we teach people how to become angel investors and venture capitalists. And they learn sourcing and diligence and valuation, all that fun stuff. And then they get to apply it to real deal flow. So it's a nice way to blend everything that I love. And I created it out of a personal need, which is when I started angel investing in 2008, no idea what I was doing. and was just fiercely Googling everything at you know every event and just felt like it was this big black box. And I really wanted to shine a light on that black box. So now I know 37 Angels also focuses, has a diversity component to it. Do you mind explaining you know, what that dimension of the program is? Yeah. So we launched really focused on teaching women how to do this because we wanted to close the gender gap at angel investing in venture capital. And in recent years, we've broadened the diversity lens a little bit to just being focused on diverse investors. And it's really to close the diversity gap, which is horrible in venture capital. And I remember, so when I started investing, I was 28, right? I'm an Asian woman and I would walk into rooms and literally get asked if I was lost. Um, and then when I started 37 Angels, wow. people would ask, like, is it just rich housewives? Um, people ask me all the time, like, where'd you get your money? And I'm like, I've been angel investing longer than I've been married, right? And so just all sorts of questions, just assuming that I must not know what I'm talking about. And so right. um, I created 37 Angels to fill a personal need, which is I wanted to invest alongside people who look like me. Um, and mm-hmm. I wanted a place where it was safe to ask questions that I didn't feel comfortable asking when I started doing this. So it's hard for people to experience this unless they're walking in your shoes, but you've gone down this path. Um, the, even just the anecdotes you just dropped, I hadn't heard before for you, from you in particular. What are the, what are you, having done this now and helped a lot of people um, get into this industry, what are the causes? Do you have any sense of that? Why, are, why is there such gender disparity? What's happening? Yeah, so one data back reason is that Women have a lot more imposter syndrome. I'm sure a lot of um, you have heard this study from um, Harvard Business School that says that um, women will only apply to a job when they're like 90 to 100% qualified for in terms of like the job description. And men will apply to a job when they're about 60% qualified. They're like, okay, there's 10 things that you need. I've got six of them. I'm going to go ahead and apply. And by definition, to be an angel investor or a venture capitalist, you are underqualified for that job because none of us really know what we're doing. Um, and you're right. investing in nascent industries and companies that have, you know, three employees. And so all of us are underqualified because we have to be ahead of the curve to be successful. And so men are much more likely to kind of say that I can do that, whereas I think women are a little bit less likely to that. That's one. Um, and the other thing is, I mean, I'm going to say the word again, which is network, which is that you don't see people who look like you doing it. And, you know, one small statistic from Columbia is there's um, a couple of other venture capital professors. They're male. And in their classes, um, the, it's, it's about one sixth women in terms of students. My class is about one third women. And that's huh. very statistically significant. And some of it's right. The women maybe are self-selecting to be taught by women. But I do think there's something about, oh, 
she's showing me that Lego women can do this. And I think that's really important to have role models who look like you. That's fascinating. But I would assume over time that changes nonlinearly, right? If you're training and bringing a bunch of people into a market, now there's a lot of other women, I would assume. How many women have come through 37 Angels that are investing now? How about three? Uh, the network is 100, but maybe 300 have gone through the program all in. That's a huge number. So I would assume all of those are talking to other folks and setting examples for others. So I would imagine this program has shifted uh, the trend at some level or will shift. Are you seeing that happen, like a second order impact of 37 Angels? So or? on the angel investing side, yes. So um, the reason why we're called 37 Angels is because when we started, only 13% of angel investors were women, and we wanted to close the gap from 13 to 50. Um, and mm. these days, we're more at like 18 to 20% angel, angel investors be women. So that's okay. better. It's better. Not great, but it's better. Weirdly, venture has shifted not at all. And there are a lot of reasons for that. It's in general hard to get a job in venture. For everybody, right? Like it's just a, if there are very few jobs and there are a lot of people seeking them. But the other thing about venture is that in order to make partner and to get senior, they either have to raise a new fund or someone has to leave. And if you think about who is senior in venture, they're like 40, 45, 50. And so there hasn't been like a generational shift for the junior people to become more senior. So it'll take time. It's going to take a while. So let's take a step back then. Let's talk about 37 Angels again, because we went down a little branch there. Um, how is uh, the community structured? For folks who are out there and are interested in the Angel Network side of this, why would they join? What's the, what's the pitch? Yeah. So you know, if I were looking to join an Angel Network or basically just putting money into this asset class in general, I think there are a couple of questions you have to ask yourself. One is, how much control do you want to have over investing? Right. So the least amount of control is you're an LP in a fund, right? I have an LP in four funds and I have no control, right? I'm like, here's my money. Go make lots of money with my money. And then on the other end, there's a solo angel where every year you look at, I don't know, a couple hundred deals and you decide what to invest in. And then in between is kind of an angel network and an angel fund model. An angel network model, at least the way we run and how most people run is we are curating deal flow for you. So we look at 2,500 companies. We really only introduce the best 50 to our angels. And then our angels at that point get to vote diligence and they have autonomy over what they invest in. And so you kind of get the benefit of the wisdom of the network. You get the benefit of deal curation, but you still have control over what you invest in. An angel fund is um, where people are pooling capital. Usually there's some voting mechanism and you know a majority or a quorum votes to invest in something and they vote. And so you get the benefit of diversification, but less autonomy. So I think it's really important for people to understand where they want to be on that spectrum. Yeah. And so why does someone want to be in the network? Because I, I think you make a really good point about the time savings, but you're still making decisions. Is there a certain type of person that tends to appeal to? Maybe someone with a day job or what's, what's the best, most likely fit? Yeah, something like that. 80 to 90% of angels have day jobs. Um, but mm -hmm. I would say that um, certainly if you're new to the ecosystem, I would join a network. I just think you're going to learn so much just kind of sheerly through osmosis and from the other smart people around the table. I think that's really important. But I always tell people, go to like a couple of meetings because you need to trust those people to be on your diligence team. You also want to like spending time with them. And so make sure that you like the other people in the network and go to a couple of meetings before you join them. And what type of companies are you guys looking for as you're filtering from 2,500 down to 50? 
what are those criteria? Yeah. So we look at the four P's, um, people, problem, progress, and price. People is obviously the team. We were looking for domain expertise, more important on B2B than B2C, something that we certainly look for. We're looking that, um, that like magical it factor. I look for empathy, specifically customer empathy and investor empathy that I'm investing. On the problem side, large problem, but a problem that we also care about. Um, and a deep understanding of the problem. I find too often that founders kind of push their product and they're like, here's my thing. I'm going to tell you the 87 different features and benefits. And I'm like, no, no, what's the problem you're solving for the customer? And the more articulate and focused you are about that, the more I'm likely to invest. Um, from a progress perspective, we look for six months of customer data. That doesn't mean revenue, mm-hmm. although it often correlates to revenue. Um, but we look for like, there's some demonstration that somebody cares about this. And even if you're pre-revenue, are people logging in? Are they um, engaging? Where do they fall off on the customer journey? And so we're looking for um, six months of customer data um, and a repeatable customer acquisition process. And of course, the deal terms need to be fair. So that's what we look Got it. for. And so, and so uh, you know, taking this moment to give you an underhand pitch here, why should entrepreneurs present to 37 Angels? What's the, what's the appeal as an investor? Yeah, so... Um, I'm actually going to start with the most tactical thing first, which is we're efficient. So we guarantee that from pitch to funding, we'll get back to you in four weeks. No other angel network does That's that. Great. Um, the average That's angel network, I think, takes like six months to get back to a founder. And um, it's really important to me that we are transparent and efficient with our answers. So we get told a lot of the time, you're the only angel network we're pitching. Um, because we're really, I'm really good at cap hunting with some of my skill sets. So that's kind of a tactical reason. Um, the other thing is the power of our network. So we really try to bring that to work for the founders in terms of introductions. We actually ask it before we even fund you in the pitch forum. The last question we ask is always, what do you need help with? And then I collect them and I send them an email. You said you needed intros to data scientists. Here are six people who can make introductions for you. Um, so I think the combination of efficiency and helpfulness is what gets us the quality of deal flow that we have. Fascinating. Okay. Now you've also been conducting probably unintentionally a large study. You've had 300 interested investors come to you. They've gone through a similar type of program. Have you figured out what makes a good investor? Have you seen any pattern in that process? Yeah. So I, I mean, I am hugely biased in this answer, but I do think education makes a good investor. Luckily, you know, we're eight years into this. We have metrics are, you know, portfolio has a 30%, over a 30% IRR, and we have a That's 3x fantastic. multiple, right? So, Great. It's, and it's interesting because I'm sure it's that beats newbie investors. Yeah, it, it, yeah it, it does. And these are new investors, right? And so I think, um, I personally believe that like an openness to learning is going to make you successful in life. And I, people who are coming into a network that is grounded in education, I think there's something about that openness to learning. And the openness to ask questions, the openness to admit what they don't know. And I think a lot of investors are on the other side, which is, let me tell you everything I do know um, versus asking those questions. So I think that's one. Um, I also think that, you know, we talk a lot about being data-driven learners. Um, I think there's a, mis- a fallacy in the ecosystem that brilliant entrepreneurs and brilliant VCs are somehow like able to force you the future. And I totally disagree with that on the founder side, for sure. And I'm like, it's all about running really quick experiments. Again, this is not new. This is like lean startup. This is what a lot of people talk about. But to really 
use that in your investing and to be a data-driven learner and to invest in data-driven learners is something that we think a lot about. It's very interesting. I, I'm sure you know Ian Sigalow is also a Columbia Business School grad. Absolutely. Um, very he bright. He was on this. Oh, that's great. So he was on the, this, in this conversation, I want to say about six months ago, and I asked him what he looked for when he was hiring, I think was the question. And it was an intellectual curiosity answer as well. It was also about education. For him, it was about constantly learning new things, mm-hmm. right? And that resonated with me uh, very significantly because it, it's not signal I had looked for before, but it's a pattern I immediately saw with some of the people I think of as the best investors. Yeah. So and we have a good egg policy as well, which is the investors. Oh, good egg policy. Good too. Yeah. Right. Well, fortunately, not all the people who make the best returns, at least in the short term, are good eggs. But, um, Unfortunately, true. Yep. Okay. Angel investing. Let's stay on that for one more thread here. Um, you know, you've all, you have this interesting perspective because 37 Angels is more than a training program. It, it, it's given you this unique view, from my perspective, into the market. Uh, how do you think the pandemic has affected uh, the, you know, the pre-seed angel stage kind of startup market? Uh, I, I think your view is probably unique because it's not just that you're looking at 2,500 deals. You're looking at 2,500 deals and talking to 300 investors right, through the system. So I, I think your signal-to-noise ratio might be higher than what people are doing if they're seeing if they're, even if they're doing a lot of deals in the round. So what are you seeing? So... I think that the art of getting someone to pay attention to you over Zoom, over email, like the founders who do that well are going to be the founders who can also break through the noise from a customer perspective. So unfortunately, during the pandemic, I think what happened is that um, I don't, it's not like income, maybe like network inequality, however you want to d- define that actually increase. And actually the data proves that out, that diversity was worse last year in any way that you define that in, in the venture capital industry. Because what happened is that people are kind of investing in people that they know, or they're, you know, you know, meeting, because it's, it is there, it is a little bit hard, right. To develop that rapport and relationship over zoom. And so we are kind of double dipping in our existing networks. Our networks tend to look like ourselves. So I think that the founders who did really well were the ones who were able to break through that and find kind of like unique ways to build new relationships, which was really, really hard last year. Any best practices you saw along the way for folks building networks through Zoom? I mean, in addition to what I talked about in terms of like asking for help and being specific and making it easy, do your research. I think it is abundantly obvious when someone sends me an email and they've just like read my bio. You don't, I mean, sometimes they like have read interviews and, and all that kind of stuff. You don't need to do that. Literally like read my bio. And I'm, we lay it out there in our FAQs, like what we invest in and, and all that kind of stuff. And it just, they show a little bit of that research again, empathy. I am going to, help them so much more. The other thing is I um, try really, really hard to help people a lot. But I used to be like, I'm going to just give you a bunch of stuff. And now what I do is every time I do, you know, a 30 minute mentoring meeting, I tell them, you know, whatever, five, 10 things that are useful. And I'm like, if you want that, email me. And I am shocked at how many people don't email me. Right. Because if, if you don't care enough that like that was an interesting connection or a resource or whatever to follow up with me, like that, I'm not going to take the time to necessarily help. But the people who follow up, I'm going to help you tenfold back. 
Um, so I think it's just like following up and showing up and, and doing the work. And it's shocking how few people do that. Yeah, that's probably an easy way to filter and vet people. Yeah, like if I'm, I don't, I don't know if I should share this, but like if I'm on like a free screening call or a diligence call with a founder, I'll say like, oh, you sell into whatever CFOs of hospitals. I know so-and-so at Mount Sinai. If they don't email me tomorrow or half an hour after the meeting, you'd be like, hey, can you introduce me to that person? Because that person's worth a million dollars of revenue by company. Like I'm not going to invest in you. And so, but it's surprising how many people don't. That's I like organized hustlers is another. Yeah, great little test. <laughs> uh, so what trends are you seeing? I mean, you're looking at 2,500 deals. Any major patterns you're seeing emerge that are current in kind of the pre-seed stage? Um, a pattern I don't like is um, what I'm sure I'm not the first person to mention. This is just like COVID market fit, which is like, oh, let me build a product that's going to be wildly successful for the next however many months that we're going to be you know, going through this, but has no business applicability in the long term. I think that's something I <laughs> am very tired of seeing. Right. Um, that would be a bad trend. Um, I think. The diversity bandwagon is maybe another trend that I'm a little tired of. You know, I'm somebody who has been deeply passionate about, and, you know, I do a lot of corporate training on diversity. And it's interesting how many people like last year were like, did you know that, you know, diversity is a, an issue? And, and yeah. yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, and then. Wait, but isn't that a good thing? Isn't late adoption of good concepts still good adoption? It is, I think, if you recognize where you are on the adoption curve. I think I for a founder to come with an idea around, I don't know, workplaces offering childcare, like it's for them to think that that's a brilliant new idea is them right. not doing their research. Right. But okay. it's good that Point they're taking. thinking about it. You're right. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, and so you talked about kind of trends happening a little bit that you're seeing in some of the companies. Anything that's happened in the angel market as a whole? Because when I ask this question, I'm asking more about how the business is conducted. How has it changed in the last decade? You've been at this for a while. With 37 angels, you said is eight years old. How is angel investing different now? Um, I think that one thing that's different is the you know, folks who are participating in like angel theater or sort of theater, I think that it's, I don't like that it's like sexy and cool and that everyone knows what it is because the sheer number of angels and money in pre-seed is way too high. You know, a, a fun statistic is a decade ago, if you raised your pre-seed or seed or what then was like your seed or your A because pre-seed didn't exist, you had like a one in three chance of raising your next round. Today, you have like between a, seven and 10% chance of raising your next round because that, there are so many false positives mm. because there's so much money in the early stage that frankly shouldn't be investing. And it's terrible. It means that we all have to look at way more deals and you have, and it's, it's, it's bad for investors, but it's actually worse for founders because now they're wasting two years of their life or three years of their life on an idea that never should have been funded. How is, what's driving this? Why is there so much more money Shark Tank is the most watched, I don't know how they like categorize it, but the most watched family show. Um, mm. And so everybody thinks they can be more Cuban. And, you know, I have Uber drivers pitching me ideas. And so I, I, I don't like that people think it's like a get rich quick 
scheme on the entrepreneurship side and the venture side, right? And the angel side. I think everybody thinks much like Bitcoin, right? Like everyone is just like, oh, it's just a surefire way to become a billionaire next year. And I think they don't realize the work again, on whether you're on the investor side or the founder side to be successful. And a lot of people, when I ask that question, also talk about how the bar is lower to get in the business, right? AngelList has helped. There's more infrastructure now. Um, you know, it's funny. I take a positive view on it. I do think it's muddying the water for, uh, for people who are really yield-oriented, such as yourself. But what I do is I think I do believe it's opening the door to a lot of people who would not have considered entrepreneurship or investing and getting them in the game. And while I think the conversion from attempt to success will be lower if they're out of the blue, uh, I think society's better with more people taking shots on goal, trying to innovate, create new jobs for themselves and the family and their friends. So I have this hope that comes from it, but I don't know if it's, is it foolish? Is it, it's, is it too far from efficient? Yeah, I totally agree with you on the founder side. I don't agree on the investor side. I don't know mm. that having a ton more angel investors necessarily leads to better innovation. Maybe, um, maybe. But I'm, right. I'm glad there's more entrepreneurial activity. I just wish there were fewer investors. <laughs> I think this is a competitive investor, like, which I love. Um, something like in the last, not including 2020, there were like between 600 and 1,000 new ventures from firms started each year. Yeah, there's a lot of noise out there. And I, I think it's actually been, just as it's been harder to be an angel, I think it's been harder to be an LP. Uh, there's so much noise coming at them and it's hard to distinguish which firms have a strategic advantage, maybe depth of experience. It's just not as obvious as it used to be. So the world is getting noisier, that's for sure. Um, we'll leave here on one last thought, one last question for you. What is the most important thing you've learned as an investor? And this is a chance to leave a nugget behind for anyone listening uh, to take something home with them that they can put in their own life. Um, supporting your founders. Um, I think that I like alliteration in case you can't tell. And so if I think about the job as an investor, it's you source great deal flow, you then select great companies to invest in, and then you support them. And I think people over-focus on that middle S, which is it's all about picking the best companies. But if you don't have great founders that you're talking to, it doesn't matter how good you are at picking companies. Right? You don't have a good pool to choose from. But then if you just kind of write a check and you walk away, you're also not going to be, um, A, getting good deal flow you're not known for being a supportive investor, but you're just not helping those companies then be successful. So I think spending more time supporting companies, but in a thoughtful, non-intrusive way, right? I think founders don't need 25 angels, you know, being aggressively helpful, but how do you be helpful in a way that lets the founder feel supported um, and that doesn't take away from their precious time? Could you give an example of how you do that? How you help without being aggressive? Yeah, so we um, the easiest way is most founders are writing kind of their investor updates, right? And there's always a how you can help, and I try to respond to every one of those emails, and that's mm -hmm. one. And then the other thing is literally just asking the question across our entire portfolio. And so, especially during COVID, we were doing you know webinars around even like how do you apply for a PPP loan, like really tactical stuff. I think sometimes people tend to like to think about like, I'm going to help with your strategy and really highbrow intellectual stuff. And like, there's really boring stuff like around custom. We did a, a whole thing around like customs. 
um, that you wouldn't think about. So I, I would say, and we talked at the very beginning about like fund administration. Like I do believe that some of that boring stuff and helping people with that um, maybe is like less interesting to talk about at a cocktail party, but is really moving the needle. Thank you for doing what you do. And you're, you've helped a lot of people, I think both through the MBA program, but also 37 Angels. Thank you for that. Thank you for taking time to be on the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a great conversation. Big thank you to Angela for everything she does and for joining me on the pod today. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.